caused everything to completely fall apart. So there's a calculated risk here, uh, but I'm hoping uh, that it will work. So uh, we will we will see what happens. So I'm going to play this, see if you can understand what it is, and then we'll talk a little bit about why we're playing it tonight. <coughs> So if you think you know what this is, feel free to send me a chat. So it's the same tune as Come Now Long Expected Jesus, but it's not that particular text. So that line was sacred gifts of mystic meaning. That might give you a clue about who they're talking about. Okay, good. Several people have figured out it's an epiphany hymn, and it's about the wise men. So uh, let me encourage you to mute yourself if you're not muted, and let me explain to you what we just listened to and why. Um, That hymn is called Earth Has Many a Noble City, and it is one of the ancient hymns of the church for the Feast of Epiphany. And I will say that one thing that is really interesting about Epiphany, for those of you who are older, is that it's kind of like Rodney Dangerfield. The comedian Rodney Dangerfield would always say, I don't get no respect. And uh, Epiphany is kind of like that in this country. It is one of the great feasts of the church and has a strong history going back to the early days of Christianity. And for whatever reason, in this country, we just ignore it for the most part. Uh, If you're in Latin America or in France or in Spain, um, you would have the day off. Um, There would be parades, there would be family gatherings and parties with special food. In some cultures, this is actually the day that you would open your Christmas gifts. So uh, Epiphany is something that's worth learning about. And I sent in the email today uh, a little uh, reflection about Epiphany that I would commend to you if you're snorkeling or scuba diving. But part of the reason I wanted to play that hymn is that Lewis was a devotee of old 
hymns. He was not a big fan of new hymns, but he really did like some of the old ones. This one was written uh, sometime around the year 370. Yes, 370, uh, almost 1,700 years ago by a man with the unlikely name of Aurelius Clements Prudentius, uh, who's one of the great hymn writers of the church. And it's important uh, in the history of Epiphany because it's a hymn that is all about Epiphany with multi-stanzas about the wise men, Jesus being manifested to the Gentiles, and it shows the rootedness of our faith. So uh, I would commend that to you. Uh, It'll go out the link in the next email. So just to review a little bit, uh, as usual, remember we are in England in wartime as this book is being written and broadcast. We talked about Jimmy Welch, the man at the BBC who went after Lewis to make sure that this book happened. We talked about the RAF, the Royal Air Force Ministry, and Lewis's work with uh, the common man, if you will, that enabled him to develop a way of speaking that was more relatable. And then we talked about the two prefaces that Lewis wrote, um, the one for the broadcast talks. It says, it's not because I'm anyone in particular that I've been asked to tell you what Christians believe. In fact, just the opposite. His deep, deep humility that is part of what makes this book so appealing. And then the second preface where he talks about mere Christianity, and he has that brilliant analogy of the hall with many different rooms leading off of the hall. So uh, those things are so important. And you'll remember that the book is organized into several different sections. And so the first book, uh, if you will, of the book is entitled Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. And that's the one that we're in. And it's so important to understand that Lewis didn't accidentally decide to start here. He is following on the universal and ancient question of who we are, what does it mean to be a human being, how did we and the cosmos come to be, how did we get here? And one of the things about this pandemic that we're in is that It is bringing up some of these ultimate questions. It makes people realize that a lot of what they've looked to for meaning and purpose, when you pull those things away, there isn't anything left in their lives. So understanding the context of this book is really important. Understanding why the Nazis were wrong in World War II is just as important now as it was then. So This whole idea about clues to the meaning of the universe is what Lewis is all about. So the first chapter was on the law of human nature, then some objections he got in letters from people uh, to his talks, um, then the reality of the law, what lies behind the law, which we're going to head on tonight, and then that really sort of ominous title for the fifth chapter, we have cause to be uneasy. Well, that'll be something to look forward to. So uh, just to review uh, from chapter one, he made two key points, that humans know the law of nature, what Lewis also calls the law of decent behavior, but we routinely break it. We know what the right way to act or behave is, but we don't do it all the time. And when we don't do it, as he says, we come up with a list of excuses as long as your arm. Then in the second chapter, 
he addresses a couple of objections. The first one is that the law of human nature is a truth rather than a convention. It's not like which side of the road you drive on or uh, where you put your hands uh, at the dinner table. It's not something like that. It is something that is truth. And he says part of the idea is that you have one set of moral ideas that you can look at and say that they are better than another. So, for example, Lewis would say the moral ideas of the British in World War II were better than those that were motivating the Nazis. But he says if you're looking at comparison like that, there has to be a standard that you're referring to that is neither of those two things. It's not the English morality or the Nazi morality. It's something else. And that's why there's that picture of the sheet music there and the keys. Because remember, Lewis used the analogy that there are two types of keys on the piano, um, white keys and black keys, but it's not as if there are wrong keys and right keys. All of them are right at one point or wrong at another. And it's the music, that piece of music that you see printed there, that tells you what is to be played, the symbol, um, the pattern. So he says the standard can't be either one of the things itself. If your moral ideas can be truer and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality for them to be true about. So last time we talked about the reality of the law and the idea of how men do behave versus how they ought to behave. And Lewis talks about how stones and trees have certain rules that govern their behavior, like gravity, that when a fruit gets loose from the limb of a tree, it drops to the ground. It doesn't decide it wants to fly in the air and do pirouettes. It doesn't have any choice. It just automatically falls to the ground. And so he says laws of nature are just, in fact, what nature does. There's no exception. But he says the problem when you look at the law of human nature is it's different. The law of different of decent behavior does not mean what humans in fact do. We don't always do the right thing in the same way that fruit always drops to the earth. Uh, many of us do not obey the law at all and none of us obey it completely. So the law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them. But the law of human nature tells you what humans ought to do and don't. And then Lewis talks about this uh, analogy of football. And you'll see there's a picture of public school football game there in England. And of course, football for them is what we would call soccer. And he says, if a man asked what was the point of playing football, it would not be much good saying in order to score goals. For trying to score goals is the game itself. It's not the reason for the game. And you would really only be saying that football was football, which is true, but not worth saying. So the purpose of football, the point of football, is not scoring points. It might be to amuse yourself or to enjoy being with your friends while getting in shape or something like that. Uh, but the purpose of it is not what's actually happening in the game. So he concludes by saying it's not simply a statement that is the law of human nature. It's not simply a statement about how we should like men to behave for our own convenience. For the behavior we call bad or unfair is not exactly the same as the behavior we find inconvenient 
and may even be the opposite. And he has some great examples of that in the chapter about the man on the train. So tonight, we move to what lies behind the law. And this is a great chapter. There is a lot packed in here. Um, So if it doesn't seem entirely clear the first time around, don't worry. It's not the post-Christmas fog. Uh, It's just that it is uh, thinking in the way that we're not always used to. So let's jump in. Lewis says the law of human nature or of right and wrong has to be something above and beyond the actual facts of human behavior. And he says, in this case, we have something beyond the actual facts, a real law which we did not invent, and yet somehow we know that we should obey it. And so this has been something that's been a debate from the beginning of time. And Lewis says there have been two views ever since men were able to think, wondering what this universe really is and how it came to be there. And he says those two views are the materialist view and the religious view. And uh, this is still very much the same thing today. Uh, You will hear this. I have these kinds of discussions with people all the time. And I love the way he explains the materialist view. He says, people who take that view think that matter and space just happen to exist and always have existed. Nobody knows why. And that the matter behaving in certain fixed ways has just happened by a sort of fluke to produce creatures like ourselves who are able to think. By one chance in a thousand, something hit our sun and made it produce the planets. And by another thousandth chance, the chemicals necessary for life and the right temperature occurred on one of these planets. And so some of the matter on this earth came alive. And then by a very long series of chances, the living creatures developed into things like us. And what Lewis is doing here, of course, is showing the immense improbability that creation could happen just as a matter of chance. Uh, One of my favorite analogies that I haven't gone behind and looked at the math to see if it's really right, but it said that the, um, the probability of man having come and all creation just by chance out of the cosmic goo is about the same probability that if you took... 10 monkeys from the jungle and put them in front of typewriters uh, in a room that they would come up, all of them, by writing the complete works of Shakespeare. And uh, I think that's a, a pretty good analogy about how very unlikely that is. So he says the other worldview about this is the religious view. Uh, according to this worldview, what's behind the universe is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. That is, it is conscious, and it has purposes, and it prefers one thing to another. And on this view, it made the universe partly for purposes we do not know, but partly, at any rate, in order to produce creatures like itself. I mean, like itself to the extent of having minds. And then I love this little proviso. Please do not think that one of these views was held a long time ago and that the other has gradually taken its place. Wherever there have been thinking men, both views turn up. And that is quite true. But we're very prone in our culture today to think, oh, people used to believe in creation, but now we're smarter. And so therefore we believe the materialist view because of progress. And Lewis is going to have a lot more to say about that later. 
And now he addresses a little bit the role of science. And this is one of the things that I think Lewis really needs to be heard on. Um, I could go on a long rabbit trail here that I'm not going to, but just suffice to say, Lewis is a huge fan of science. He deeply believes in science and thinks it is one of God's great gifts to us. And it's part of the way that God has revealed himself that there are things about the universe that are discoverable through science. But he also wants to be very clear that we understand what the role of science is and what the role of science is not. So he touches on that here. He says, you cannot find out which view is the right one by science in the ordinary sense. Science works by experiments. It watches how things behave. But why anything comes to be there at all, or whether there is anything behind the things science observes, something of a different kind, this is not a scientific question. If there is something behind, then either it will have to remain altogether unknown to men, or else make itself known in some different way. Supposing science ever became complete so that it knew every single thing in the entire universe. Is it not plain that the questions, why is there a universe? Why does it go on as it does? Has it any meaning would remain just as they were? And this is a great point to think about. What Lewis is saying, of course, is that science is about how things happen, looking at how things um, interact, looking at processes and laws, but it can't tell you why. It can't tell you what's behind it. It can't tell you why or purpose or any of those kinds of things. Uh, more about that later. Uh, there will be a little uh, tidbit uh, in the email that goes out from John Polkinghorn, uh, who's one of my favorite scientists, who's also an Anglican priest, a brilliant particle physicist um, who was on the faculty at Cambridge. Uh, and he has a lot of great things to say about science and faith. So this brings us to the next point, which is about origins. We want to know whether the universe simply happens to be what it is for no reason, or whether there is a power behind it that makes it what it is. Since that power, if it exists, would be not one of the observed facts but a reality which makes them, no mere observation of the facts can find it. There's only one case in which we can know whether there's anything more, namely our own case. And in that one case, we find that there is. So he uses a great analogy here. He says, if there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe no more than the architect of the house could actually be a wall or staircase or fireplace in that house. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave in a certain way. And that is just what we do find inside ourselves. Surely this ought to arouse our suspicions. So part of what Lewis is saying here is imagine that you went out uh, on a boat and you were on a long cruise through the ocean and you came to an uninhabited desert island. 
And as you got off the boat and walked up on the island, you walked into a grove, and in the middle of the grove, there is a spectacularly beautiful house of about 4,000 square feet with a kitchen and central air conditioning and all of that. It would seem highly unlikely that that house just appeared out of the palm trees and the sand because of chance. It seems much more likely that someone built it there. And the evidence is in the fact that it's there uh, and that the island is not just in a purely natural state. So there's evidence that something has intervened and done something. Uh, but the architect of the house uh, in that example is not there. All you can do is just look and wonder about it. But imagine if the architect could actually speak to you in some way. And that's what Lewis is saying we find happens in our case, that we find this law of human nature speaking to us uh, in our conscience and our understanding of right and wrong. And he has the second analogy about the postman. Um, the postman uh, was much more of a fixture probably during Lewis's time period. Uh, people were aware and knew who their postman was. But he says this, suppose someone asked me when I see a man in a blue uniform going down the street, leaving little paper packets at each house, why I suppose that they contain letters. Remember those days when people used to write letters? I should reply because whenever he leaves a similar little packet for me, I find it does contain a letter. And if he then objected, but you've never seen all these letters, which you think the other people are getting, I should say, of course not, and I shouldn't expect to, because they're not addressed to me. I'm explaining the packets I'm not allowed to open by the ones I am allowed to open. So what he's talking about here is an inference um, that can be generalized. And then he goes back to the stone and trees idea. So he says, the only packet that I'm allowed to open is man. When I do, especially when I open that particular man called myself, I find that I do not exist on my own, that I am under a law, that somebody or something wants me to behave in a certain way. I do not, of course, think that if I could get inside a stone or a tree, I should find exactly the same thing, just as I do not think all the other people in the street get the same letters as I do. I should expect, for instance, to find that the stone had to obey the law of gravity, that whereas the sender of the letters merely tells me to obey the law of my human nature, he compels the stone to obey the laws of its stony nature. But I should expect to find that there was, so to speak, a sender of letters in both cases, a power behind the facts, a director, a guide. That these things have not just happened randomly, but there is purposefulness, a purposefulness that demands some kind of mind. So that's his next point. Um, and I love the way he phrases this. He's being very careful to avoid religious jargon. So he says he calls it a something. Uh, Do not think I'm going faster than I really am. I'm not yet within a hundred miles of the God of Christian theology. All I have got to is a something 
which is directing the universe, and which appears in me as a law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. And then he adds a, a little section uh, that's kind of a note um, about the life force. And Lewis uh, had gotten some letters about this, and so he wanted to address it. And the life force, that's why we've got Yoda up there, may the force be with you. Um, this is a very popular thing in our culture today. And it's basically, it's kind of an updated deism. It's the idea there's some kind of God, there's some kind of force out there, um, and it's, it's good. It's a good force, but it doesn't really want to interfere with you in any way. Um, and it doesn't really have any rules or expectations of you. It's just this thing that's out there that can make you feel better. And I love the way that Lewis puts it. He says, when you're feeling fit and the sun is shining and you do not want to believe that the whole universe is a mere mechanical dance of atoms, which, by the way, that is the naturalistic worldview, um, the nihilistic worldview. And when you begin to believe that there's no purpose and meaning to any of it, that leads to despair. So when you're feeling good and the sun's shining, you don't want to believe that. It's nice to be able to think of this great mysterious force with Yoda on its shoulder, rolling on through the centuries and carrying you on its crest, because of course you're the most important person in the world. If on the other hand, you want to do something rather shabby, the life force being only a blind force with no morals and no mind will never interfere with you like that troublesome God we learned about when we were children. The life force is a sort of tame God. You can switch it on when you want, but it will not bother you. All the thrills of religion and none of the cost. Is the life force the greatest achievement of wishful thinking the world has ever seen yet. And I think he's absolutely right about that. Um, the life force doesn't hold up very well under any kind of uh, rigorous thinking, but it's a nice pablum if you don't want to bother to think. So that leads him to his next point about progress. And he says progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. And then he has two analogies. The first, if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. And I think all of us have probably had this experience of trying to go somewhere where we we're uncertain of the directions and we started going the wrong way. And the worst thing you can do, and I'm not going to really say anything here about the fact that men may not always ask for directions when they should. I'm not going to really go there. Uh, but if you persistently insist on staying on the wrong road, it just takes you longer and longer and longer to get where you're going to go because you've got at some point to turn around. And I love the fact that he uses this analogy because metanoia, the Greek word for repentance that means change of mind, also means turn around, literally about face. 
So he's exactly right on that. And then he uses the analogy from arithmetic. Now, I know some of y'all break out in hives when we start talking about math, but just stick with me on this one. He says, we've all seen this when doing arithmetic. When I've started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start over again, the faster I shall get on. There's nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it's pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. And this is such a great point to talk about on the Feast of the Epiphany, because Epiphany is all about light, about Jesus, the light of the world, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And yet we persist in trying to follow the darkness instead of the light and relying on our own strength. And I'm going to tell a little story here uh, that I have told some of you before, so just bear with me. But years ago, when I was playing the piano for a uh, production of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, we were on tour, and we had gone up to Florence, South Carolina, to their little theater. And they had a beautiful theater um, that sat hundreds and hundreds of people. And we had sold out the house for this particular show. And my role in the show was to be the piano player, uh, which meant that I had a kazoo and a bell and some other things and played all of the music for all the songs. So uh, trying to be prepared, I went to the theater in the afternoon to check out the orchestra pit where the piano was uh, to make sure there was an extra light bulb for the piano light, which I'd learned the hard way is an important thing to have and to make sure that I knew where to walk um, when I came through the door, because as you know, when a show gets ready to start, all the house lights go out, including the ones in the pit. So everything was great. I was sure I was ready. And so we were backstage waiting. You could hear all the murmur of excitement of people out in the theater. And uh, the lights came down. It was time for me to go out in the orchestra pit. I opened the door into the pit, remembered exactly where the piano was, and strode forth um, to walk over and turn the light on and start the overture. I was very confident. I had done everything in my own strength and wisdom that needed to be done. And what could possibly go wrong? Well, what I didn't know is that somewhere between when I was there and when the show started, someone had gone into the orchestra pit and left a stack of about 15 folding metal chairs propped against the wall next to the door. And I walked out and ran right into them. And so the first chair went, went bang in this concrete orchestra pit that echoes. And then they went one after another, bang, 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 bang. And then I fell on top of them. And so then I had to crawl over to the piano. And when I turned the light on, they all applauded. It was absolutely humiliating. But it's, I think, a great example of what happens when we try to rely on ourselves. When we walk in the darkness, that's the kind of thing that happens. And the only light that the darkness cannot overcome is the light of Christ. So that brings us to his next point about the evidence. 
And he says, we have two bits of evidence about the somebody that is behind the law. And the first one is the universe. He says, the universe, if we use that as our only clue, then I think we should have to conclude that he was a great artist, for the universe is a very beautiful place. Just think of waterfalls or the sunset or the ocean, but also that he is quite merciless and no friend to man, for the universe is a very dangerous and terrifying place. Think about being caught in a hurricane or an earthquake or a winter storm or somewhere where there's no water. So he says the second piece of evidence is the moral law. The other bit of evidence is that the moral law, which is he put it into our minds. And this is a better bit of evidence than the other because it is inside information. You find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general, just as you find out more about a man by listening to his conversation than by looking at a house he has built. So what Lewis is saying here is that the moral law, this law of human nature, gives us insights about God that we could never get just from studying nature. To be sure, there are insights about God we can get from nature through natural revelation, through natural theology. But there's a whole nother level that we can get through looking at the moral law. So the implications of this. Now from the second bit of evidence, we can conclude that the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct, in fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty, and truthfulness. In that sense, we should agree with the account given by Christianity and some other religions that God is good. But do not let us go too fast here. The moral law does not give us any grounds for thinking that God is good in the sense of being indulgent or soft or sympathetic, what some people call sloppy agape. There's nothing indulgent about the moral law. It is hard as nails. It tells you to do the straight thing, and it does not seem to care how painful or dangerous or difficult it is to do. If God is like the moral law, then he is not soft. It is no use at this stage saying that what you mean by a good God is a God who can forgive. So this leads us to our predicament. A predicament is not a good place to be. That is the terrible fix we are in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts are in the long run hopeless. And this is worth thinking about because we see a lot of dystopian novels and movies and science fiction where the universe is not governed by absolute goodness, where it's governed by a malevolent evil force. And you see how just horrible that is and how it ruins all life for everyone. So the fact that the universe is governed by an absolute goodness is the most hopeful thing that there could be. Um, because without that, our lives have no meaning, they have no purpose, and we have no hope. On the other hand, if the universe is governed by this absolute goodness, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day. 
and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow, and so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it, and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden, their beautiful relationship with God that's marred by their sin, their fellowship with God broken, they're terrified, they're hiding from God, the one who loved them and made them. God is our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. Christianity tells people to repent, that is, not just to be sorry, but to turn around, to change the road they're on, to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. And my friends, this is one of the great points that makes this book so relevant to us today because we live in a culture that is obsessed with convincing us that we are good, that everything about us is good, that the idea of sin is something that needs to be stricken from the vocabulary, as does evil, that everything is just a matter of choices and there are no wrong choices. You are your own creator. You are good, and the idea that you need forgiveness is shocking. Why would you ever need forgiveness? Because you are enough. So that, of course, flies in the face, not only of Christian teaching, but of the teaching of pretty much every other major religion and of most of philosophy. So that brings us to the key realization. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law, that is a real law of human behavior, of decent behavior, and a power behind the law, and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this, and not a moment sooner, that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. When you have realized that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. And Jesus models this for us by spending his time with the people that are broken, the outcast of society, who know that there is something wrong and that they have done wrong and their hearts convict them. And so they are anxious uh, to be healed from that. And of course, Jesus, when he's hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes, the Pharisees, those self-righteous people that think they don't need to be forgiven for anything, come and say to Jesus' disciples, why does your master associate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes? And Jesus answers them, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
And the really sad thing in our age is that we have this facade, this facade that you can see so much on social media about we're beautiful, we have it all together, all of our families are perfect and like like woebegone, everyone is better than average. And we have this facade that everything is going great, we love our jobs, everything's perfect in our home life and in our health. And underneath that veneer, our culture is filled with despair. And especially among younger people um, who have bought into this idea that there's nothing wrong with them, that they're, everything about them is right and it's just choices. That's the age group that right now during this pandemic, 25% of people between 18 and 34 have seriously considered suicide since the pandemic started. That is a tragic and frightening number. And it should remind us who are Christians that we hold out the word of life and light and the gospel of truth that is the only answer to that. All right, well, I'm getting a little ahead of Lewis and starting to preach, so let me go back to this. So he says the first thing that is important is that when you realize that you're nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. First, Christians have explanations. They offer an explanation of how we got into our present state of both hating goodness and loving it. They offer an explanation of how God can be this impersonal mind at the back of the moral law and yet also a person. They tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf. How God himself becomes a man to save man from the disapproval of God. It is an old story. And if you want to go into it, you will no doubt consult people who have more authority to talk about it than I have. One of the things Lewis says elsewhere is that one of the great things about Christianity is that it does have explanations and that some of them are so improbable when you take all of it together that it actually has the ring of truth because no one would make this up the way that it stands. And the second thing he says is facing the facts. All I am doing is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the questions which Christianity claims to answer. And they are very terrifying facts. I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable. But I must say what I think is true. Of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort. But it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I have been describing. And it is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through that dismay. And to go back to Jesus and the Pharisees for a moment, you will remember that the people who were most opposed to Jesus were the Pharisees, those who were righteous in their own eyes, who thought that they had no need of God, that they could keep the law on their own, and therefore God owed them something because they were so upright. And Jesus, uh, in one of his encounters, talks to one of the Pharisees about the woman who is bathing his feet with her hair and her tears. And one of the things he says is the one who has been forgiven much loves much. The one who is forgiven little 
loves little. And I think that there's such a deep truth in that for our culture right now, and that people are um, putting on this front that they have it all together, whereas underneath, um, so many people are dying inside. And Lewis has this great uh, quotation about comfort that ends this chapter. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will get neither comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. Let me read that again. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. We live in an age that is seeking after comfort, but doesn't want truth. And that's why it is a hopeless quest. And that's why the Christian gospel is so very, very important right now. So Lewis is kind of building this case um, that leads us to next week, the we have cause to be uneasy. But there's a lot to think about in this chapter um, that we've just talked about tonight, and I would commend to you to review it. So uh, let's say together this passage from the end of the book, and then I'll close this in prayer and we'll have time for a question or two. So at the very end, uh, this is what Lewis says, where there's deep truth here, uh, much along the lines of what we've talked about tonight. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the light, that you are the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that you show us the way to live a life of meaning and purpose in accord with the way that you have created us in your image. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to avoid the sin of self-righteousness and smug superiority, and that we would understand that there but for the grace of God go we, and that we would have hearts of compassion 
for those who are struggling in this culture and seeking truth and seeking love in all the wrong places. Lord, we pray that you would break our hearts for them and that you would use us in our trembling way as beggars, helping show other beggars where the bread of life may be found. We thank you for all of these things and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, if there are any questions about any of that, um, please feel free to uh, chime in. You can do it through chat or however um, you would like to do that. Um, let's see if I can get us off of the screen here. So if you have any question or comment, you can either uh, send a chat or unmute yourself. Um, Janice, did you have a question? I did. I wanted to know what that statistic was on um, people considering suicide because it wasn't in the notes. Yes. So that statistic, um, I think, is from the CDC. I will check it um, and send it out in the email. But it is um, the statistic of 18 to 34-year-olds um, in the survey sample, which is a large survey sample since the pandemic began, that 25% of them have considered suicide since the pandemic began. And this, you know, it actually falls right in line with a big study that the CDC released last year that should have been on the front page of every newspaper and on the lead of every news broadcast, but wasn't. And that was, and I think I've mentioned this before, that the... Um, life expectancy of Americans declined last year for the first time since the Spanish flu. And the reason was not because of older people dying. Um, the reason that the life expectancy declined was because of what the CDC calls diseases of despair, which is suicide, alcoholism, and drug abuse in people under the age of 35. And the death rate had spiked so much in that age group that it drew the entire life expectancy of the nation downward. So um, it's certainly something that we as Christians need to be aware of and need to be trying to do something about. Um, because many of us have ignored uh, what the scriptures say, which is those of us who are older Christians are supposed to be mentoring younger Christians. And so if you're not in a relationship with at least one person who's between 18 and 34 outside of your own family, you might pray that God would open the door for you to speak into that. Um, another great question somebody had is, what's a concise expression of the law of human nature? And I would say basically um, what Lewis is talking about with the law of human nature is this understanding that there is a right and a wrong. There's a sense of what's fair, um, that we, we automatically feel violated um, if somebody breaks it. Just uh, some of the examples he uses of that uh, law of human nature about what we should do. Uh, all you have to do is see what happens when somebody tries to break in line at the grocery store and look at all the dirty looks the person gets. So um, it's, base, it's not just conscience, though. It is an understanding of what the right thing to do is that includes 
helping you choose among conflicting impulses. And the example that Lewis uses for that is when you're on a nice walk, uh, we'll say on the battery in Charleston, and you see someone um, struggling in the water who's fallen off of a sailboat and is drowning and you have, and they're yelling help and there's no one else around and you have one impulse that says, keep walking, um, you're not a Coast Guard trained rescue swimmer, it's not your problem, you need to preserve your own safety. And then you have another impulse that says, you need to help that person that's drowning. But then you have a third impulse that says, you need to listen to the voice that says, help the person that's drowning. So I don't know if that's concise, but hopefully that, that helps a little bit. Um, other questions or thoughts? Well, I will uh, encourage you when you get the email after this class, uh, particularly if you're snorkeling or scuba diving, um, the material from uh, the Reverend Dr. John Polkinghorne that will be in there, do check that out. I also want to do one more book plug uh, for Athanasius on the Incarnation. It's right here. It sits on my little table. See how short it is? It's really short, uh, really short, and it even, the print is not teeny tiny, uh, but I guarantee you, if you buy this book, you will be grateful. Um, you don't have to sit down and read the whole thing. Just open it up pretty much anywhere and read a paragraph or two, because it's such, essentially a long reflection on the wonder and the glory of what it means that Christ became incarnate, became a man for us. And it is beautiful. Um, now, of course, if you can read small print at the bottom there, you will notice that this edition says, with an introduction by C.S. Lewis. And uh, Lewis's introduction is really great too. So I would commend that to you. Um, Happy New Year to all of you. Um, Happy Feast of the Epiphany to all of you. And uh, I will look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks so much for being here. God bless you.